This is David Nage with my co-host Amanda Frankel. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors learn about crypto. Welcome back to Baselayer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Paul, who is a partner at Pantera Capital, one of the oldest crypto-focused funds in the market today. We had a great conversation about the history and the evolution of infrastructure within crypto. Really interesting conversation because we talked about the last four to five years, how earlier it started with exchanges and wallets, investments that they made in things like Bitstamp and Circle and Joppo, how it enabled access and storage of crypto and how the evolution of infrastructure has really started to change from wanting to focus now you know, on things like cross-border payments with uh, companies like Abra and then how changing the infrastructure uh, became important when things like Ethereum started taking over um, with dApps and some of the new tokens and the kind of explosion of tokens in the market. And so the infrastructure needed to change. Trading became uh, more prevalent. Uh, price discovery became more prevalent. Uh, the infrastructure of that of that financial system started to be needed. And so it was a really interesting conversation. We spent a lot of time talking about the importance of cross-border payments as one of the first big catalysts, one of the first big cool apps, and the need for a lot of infrastructure to be built around it. We also had a really interesting conversation about Coinbase. And uh, Paul writes a weekly newsletter, which I think you should check out. And we talked about how there actually may be local Coinbases all over the world because it's really hard to set up uh, all the infrastructure there. You need to have the banking relationships, the regulatory relationships, and how there might be all these mini little coin bases around the world in places like the Philippines and India and Korea and such and such. Really interesting conversation there. So this is a great one to take a listen to. Uh, Pantera is a very experienced investor in the space. Uh, Paul has a lot of experience coming into Pantera. So please remember that nothing on base layer is investment advice. Please do your own research. And on the flip side, you'll hear from our sponsor and then the podcast with Paul. Enjoy. Today's family offices and hedge funds face a number of challenges when it comes to trading and managing their crypto portfolios. On the trading front, siloed liquidity, opaque execution, and questionable compliance deter entry. On the management front, spreadsheet and manual workflows are still the de facto solution. These infrastructure and usability problems, which have been long solved in traditional finance, still need to be addressed in crypto. Lumina has set out to solve this problem. To find out more about Lumina, please go to lumina.app. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer. I have Paul Radatakis from Pantera with us today. Paul, how are you? Very good. How are you doing, Dave? I'm great. This was a really lovely instance where worlds collided and we were able to coordinate a call with Paul really quickly here and get him on the show. So this is uh, this was unexpected, but this is really exciting. Paul is a partner at Pantera. Pantera has been around for a number of years. I think one of the first uh, funds out there to really start exploring and investing in the crypto universe. And so uh, definitely looking forward to having Paul on and uh, talking about the things that they're doing at Pantera. So with that, Paul, you know, if you could, for the listeners out there, you know, the floor is yours. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing at Pantera. And then we have a bunch of questions to go into to kind of learn about what you guys are doing there and what you're focusing on. Yeah, uh, thank you so much, Dave. Love to give a little background first. And, um, you know, I've been with Pantera for the last five years. Uh, before getting into Pantera, you know, I started off my career as an economic consultant, uh, doing a lot of economic research and analysis of litigation cases for Fortune 500 companies. And that really got myself uh, deep into working in financial services and being able to get really analytical and, and build models and really make a difference on that side. But, you know, as many people in Silicon Valley, um, you know, really 
really wanted to just get involved with startups. You know, a lot of my friends were starting companies or, you know, advising companies. And, you know, for me, that's what really sounded exciting. So, you know, I joined, um, you know, an early stage startup in the daily deal space and daily deal aggregator called Urban Spoils and really got my feet wet in terms of doing partnerships and business development and and growth for for this website and mobile app that was going to really just kind of reduce all of the noise that you're getting from all of these daily deal sites and really give you the relevant daily deals that you need on a certain day. And, you know, it was going great, um, able to to get some some funding, help them throughout that process. But, you know, it really just kind of sparked an interest to get deeper with startups. And now I wasn't really quite sure what avenue that was going to take. I mean, I, I was thinking just doing the same thing at a startup, going out there. I felt like I was a, a pretty strategic and, and social person that can go out there and continue to do BD. But I came across a role at a corporate VC fund called Strive Capital. And it was it was great. You know, they were looking to invest into one sector, uh, mobile. And at the time in late 2010, mobile was still really early. There weren't a lot of uh, a lot of mobile apps out there that had significant traction. So we basically created a strategy of of doing a money ball for mobile apps and using a bunch of data to invest into companies that were post product and were hitting hockey stick growth. And, you know, that led into investing into uh, a mobile infrastructure company called App Annie, which is a Nielsen for mobile app data. And so I think what I learned from being a VC there was focusing on one space, a space that's early, trying to navigate through sourcing and building a thesis and and really just, you know, figuring out what's going to take the space, you know, further. And then <clears throat> I ran into crypto and just like yourself, you know, kind of went down that rabbit hole where I was reading about it. One of my, one of my investor friends at Lightspeed told me about it. And I just got really fascinated with it. You know, I thought about joining Coinbase early on. They only had six or seven employees, but, you know, I thought that like there was more to be done on the investor side. You know, I got connected with Pantera and really just, you know, really just like the team there. You know, Dan with his uh, experience at Tiger Management running funds and hedge funds for the last 20 years. Felt like it was a great fit to be able to join Pantera, bring my venture experience and help them launch their venture funds and really figure out everything from sourcing to diligence to portfolio management and really have just spearheaded our venture side. And then, of course, when ICOs came on, um, you know, we launched an ICO fund to invest into just pre-sales and, and Joey Krug brought him on board and he's really heading up uh, the the token side, both on the ICO fund and also our digital asset fund, which is a long short fund that's investing into cryptocurrencies that are already on exchanges. So, you know, all in all, we have four strategies, a Bitcoin ETF venture, which is equity, ICOs, which are pre-sales, and then digital asset fund, which is uh, long short active trading. Uh, we've been able to scale up to, you know, hundreds of millions, uh, all the way up to, you know, at one point, almost up to a billion of assets under management. And it's been a wild ride so far. And, and um, you know, we're, we're definitely, you know, I feel like one of the few that have survived, you know, people say this is crypto winter. We've we've been through many winters and, and you know, we've been able to survive a lot of them. So it's been it's been a wild ride so far. Yeah, I don't know if crypto winter is actually the relevant analogy anymore. I think we need to come up with something new. I think it's almost like nuclear holocaust. Um, <laughs> it, it's 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 an interesting take, um, but there's a lot to unpack there, especially what you're doing in Pantera. And I'll have some questions, but one of the things I always kind of get people to talk about yeah. on Baselayer is not necessarily the when of Bitcoin or when of crypto. When you said, "Okay, this is really you know what I'm going to do," and you you alluded to it that you were you know thinking about going to Coinbase, but at what that time that you kind of started going down the proverbial rabbit hole, what about it? What signal to you said this is going to be transformative? This is going to be where the value is going to accrue. This is the new, you know, as some people say, the new internet. 
what about it signaled to you that you were going to devote your career to that space and to this technology? Yeah, you know, great question. And, you know, at the time, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be able to say that I, I knew that this was going to be at least where a significant part of my career was going to reside. But when I read the Bitcoin white paper, uh, you know, what really, what really made me interested was, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, this, uh, this cryptocurrency sort of allowed, um, you know, a, a decentralized uh, network of, of value to, to be created. And, you know, to me, where we're in a world where, you know, there's all these different middlemen and all these different monopolies um, and, and people, you know, uh, extracting fees, using your data. I mean, uh, you know, the, everything is, is sort of emerged and is being very uh, commercial that, you know, I felt like, you know, freedom of, of information, uh, you know, self-sovereignty, uh, financial access, uh, all of that could be had in a decentralized peer-to-peer uh, -peer network. And so when I thought about the types of use cases, and it really just started off with first, you know, governments not being able to control um, pricing and be able to manipulate this currency and then be able to freely move this currency across borders and give people in the emerging markets access to this currency that is uh, decentralized without having to go through the typical intermediaries that they're used to. I thought that alone was already intriguing. And of course, when, you know, Ethereum emerged, then it got, you know, to a different scale in terms of the possibilities. So that's what that's what really drew me in was that um, you know, just with the store of value and value transfer, especially across across borders in a peer-to-peer -peer way, you know, that's already disrupting, you know, almost a you know, trillion dollar industry. And so, you know, beyond beyond that, I mean, you know, I knew that I knew that it was a risk. I knew that it was really early. No one really knew what I was talking about when I was when I was mentioning Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. So, you know, to me, it, it was it was worth the bet uh, to go in at that time and have an opportunity to get in early, be a thought leader and try to, you know, forge this space forward. And my thinking was, well, you know, give it two to three years. If it really isn't going anywhere, then I would sort of rethink things. But, you know, I felt like the reward was was worth the risk. And, you know, uh, as, as you know, I mean, it's, it's even right now, I mean, it's, it's, it's lonely out there, but it's, it's definitely back then it was really, really lonely out there. So I was yep. <laughs> the only one carrying the flag. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, there's an interesting quote, uh, Mark Andreessen did a, a podcast recently and they were talking about the scene, uh, as it relates to the arts. Um, and there was this notion of the scene where, People in the 40s and 50s, when you know movies started coming out, there was a movie scene. The whole LA scene happened, and then in the arts, with you know all of these amazing artists that have come out, and then music, obviously in the 80s and 90s, especially. And so there's always been like a hub of you know kind of the creatives, if you will. And so I think you know to your point early on, it was it was lonely, um, but I think we are starting to develop a nice scene within this space where there are collectives, you know, there are people that are working together there. Obviously we're using social media platforms and uh, things like Telegram and Slack and obviously crypto Twitter has become a really big place for people to learn and communicate with each other. So it, yeah, I agree with you. It, it was lonely at one time, but I think it's starting to get a little bit better now. Um, oh, yeah. But to shift gears, um, so my opinion over the last few years is that we have put the cart before the horse. Um, you know, there was a lot of interest in 2017. We saw a massive uptick in Bitcoin. Obviously, that was driven by retail interest. Uh, we saw that it was not necessarily the slow money and the more diligent money was obviously the folks that were 
potentially, in my opinion, you know, kind of searching for that missing yield that they lost out of because they didn't participate in the equity bull run of the last 10 years. And so uh, there was a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of energy, a lot of interest. Um, we had Linda on the, a few weeks ago talking about the early days of Coinbase. We, you know, we know that, yeah. you know, there was a lot of people who were going to Coinbase and trying to get KYCML and trying to get themselves verified yeah. so they can, you know, participate in this, um, and they just weren't ready. And so, you know, kind of talking about the state of the state of crypto infrastructure. Um, I know you guys have been looking at those projects, and I know that, you know, as a as a as a firm. It's been an area of interest, you know, projects like Tagomi, which I will obviously say I am an advisor to Tagomi. So, oh, that. um, yeah, they are a great team um, and an institutional quality team. Um, so definitely uh, learn more about them if you don't know about them. Uh, but then we have, you know, companies like Bact and other institutional quality teams that are building, you know, high caliber infrastructure. So I'm curious to get your opinion and your hot take. Where are we, you know, in, in terms of the historical perspective where was crypto infrastructure, you know, two years ago? Where is it today? And where do you think it's going in the next year or so with your kind of the view of the things that you guys are looking at in terms of investments in this space? So give us a little bit of history and give us a little bit of current and then give us a little bit of the future of crypto infrastructure. Yeah, so, you know, since the beginning, we've been investing into what we would call infrastructure. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, it's changed over time. You know, 2014, 2015, we were investing into, and, and some of that's still going on right now, it just takes different forms. We were investing into exchanges and wallets and security providers. So some of the early companies that we invested into, Bitstamp, Circle, uh, Bitstamp's a global uh, exchange. Uh, Circle is both an exchange and a wallet. Zappo is likely the world's largest custodian of Bitcoin. I think they probably custody like 10% uh, of the world's Bitcoin or something like that. And, and those sort of companies uh, really just enabling people to access, to store and to speculate on, on cryptocurrency. And, you know, our thought was that, you know, not only would the U.S. Uh, need this sort of infrastructure, but globally, we would need this infrastructure too. So you can imagine the same sort of companies, wallets, exchanges, security providers emerging in all of these different uh, geographies. And so, you know, that's been our our thesis of investing into. You know, if we if we call um, Bitcoin the uh, you know what 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 Bitcoin is doing is is what Vort did to the the telephone industry that you know Bitcoin allows sort of money over IP then uh, these exchanges are are routers for money movement and you know after investing into some of those routers we've then gone on and. Uh, invested into some of the early use cases around cryptocurrency. So some on the application layer and, you know, it's early and, and we figured there would be teams that we really wanted to make a bet on that could take advantage of that uh, first mover in a certain use case. So that meant cross-border payments. So companies like Veeam and Abra, whether it's on the consumer side or the business side, uh, we quickly realized that people were not going to be buying Bitcoin themselves and then sending it uh, to their friends. Uh, they would more likely uh, want experience where they're still just dealing with fiat and Bitcoin becomes the uh, money over IP or the transportation wheel to kind of get value from one place uh, or one currency to another uh, currency across borders. So now after investing into a few of those different cross-border companies, uh, you know, those ones are actually doing very well in terms of, in terms of traction. Uh, you know, we've then shifted over to a bit of, of enterprise in 2016. And then, you know, what we saw in 2017 with Ethereum and the ability for open source projects to issue tokens for fundraising going out to the crowd, more retail, and, you know, these tokens would function within the technology or product. I mean, it really just 
you know, decentralized, globalized, how fundraising was done in our space. And, you know, what that really helped uh, push forward was a new set of infrastructure. Uh, right, right in 2017, now we needed an infrastructure that was going to support not just one token, but many tokens. So what does that mean? That means everything from, you know, token projects needing to know what's going on with their tokens to things like treasury management to, uh, you know, institutional trading tools like, like uh, Tagomi or smart order routing to um, consumer products that uh, allow users to track portfolios, be able to easily move uh, their portfolio around. So uh, whether it's a consumer product or whether it was a developer product, you know, you know, something to help secure and 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 uh, validate uh, smart contracts and and uh, and then trading infrastructure. You know, things have things have changed to support a a multi-token world. And, you know, I think going into 2019, we're still seeing a lot of those same um, infrastructure type plays around consumers, developers and and speculation. But on the speculation side, you know, again, you mentioned that you're an advisor to Tagomi. Uh, you know, we think that, you know, some of the reasons why the price is down was, you know, a lot of projects got funded and a lot of projects just you know, aren't doing so well. There's just so much hype going into the space and, and not, you know, the infrastructure and the, the use cases and the substance, you know, just wasn't quite there to support it. That in, in addition to, you know, regulatory hurdles, uh, you know, now that, um, you know, that the price is, is back to where it is right now, you know, we think what is going to be part of the next bull run, in addition to just, you know, hopefully usage is actually institutional capital coming into the space. But, you know, we're going to need more institutional grade infrastructure. So things like to go me around trading, um, you know, more licensed custody solutions um, like, you know, BitGo and Bact and Coinbase custody to uh, data, uh, data tools to, um, you know, institutional grade exchanges and features, uh, you know, feature exchanges. And so, all of these are, are being built, and that's why, you know, as you mentioned, the the next wave of companies around around uh, Bact and Tagomi are are being built right now. I think where we're going to go forward, um, you know, I think at least for the next year or so, we're really expecting a lot of our companies to, you know, stay lean, stay heads down, and build on product and regulation, so that when the next bull run hits. Uh, they're going to be able to support it, you know, because the space is so early, it is very volatile, volatile in terms of price and volatile in terms of of volumes and activity and, and whatnot. And so, um, you know, you just have to, you know, most of the most of the action happens when price goes back up. And, you know, these companies need to be uh, need to be prepared for that. Uh, once once things do start emerging uh, and being built in terms of infrastructure and some of that's going to be including scalability then hopefully we'll start seeing a lot more decentralized applications go and uh, you know really get some traction so you know we'll start seeing some more investments into layer three and layer three means companies like Vail or Gesser or you know other ones that are building uh, centralized companies or UI interfaces on top of protocols. And I think that's where the future of the investments lie, where once the infrastructure is being built, then we can actually see all these uh, these front-end applications really start gaining traction. So it's, you know, I've, I've talked about infrastructure a lot on the show, and we've had some interesting commentary on that. So there was a note that I'd like to reference back from USV about this notion of needing, you know, of scalability, kind of being a false narrative potentially. And there was this notion that Nick and the guys over there had described effectively that, you know, you needed to, before you had the infrastructure, you needed to actually have the cool app, the cool thing that everyone wanted to use. And every, everyone would start flooding to use that thing. 
and then the infrastructure would go to hell in a handbag, and then you'd have to build the infrastructure, and then you would have this whole cycle happen again. And so I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, we're deviating a little bit, but what was the cool kind of app? What was the big use case initially, you know, to kind of spur? Was it more like a CryptoKitties? Was that kind of what the, you know, was was that the cool app that kind of got everyone going, and that's why we're building a lot of the infrastructure? Was it Bitcoin? Was it just the speculation as a as a general thesis? What was the what was the driving force? Do you think for a lot of the infrastructure build right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think as a venture investor, I've really I, I've really seen these companies at a close level and and a wide variety of them. So I think the first sort of instance where I I was like, hey, we really do need to figure out a way to scale this would be around cross-border payments because I think that's the most logical use case once people got cryptocurrencies in their hands is, well, I can send this to someone and I don't have to go through a bank and I don't have to pay, you know, five to 10% fees and, and wait, you know, 10 to 20 days. And, you know, who knows like what I'm going to actually like be sending at the, at the end, because, you know, the, the, it, there's just so much ambiguity and the banks can kind of do, do what they want with it because of, of, you know, their incentive. So, you know, when our companies were looking to scale up on that side, you know, Bitcoin was just too slow for that to for that to happen. So, you know, I, I think that was the first instance of needing to to figure that out. And then, you know, I think I think where more of the mainstream sort of figured out uh, what was going on with scalability was around things like. Uh, Crypto Kitty, that's probably like the first real, you know, instance of something gaining some quick consumer traction and uh, people realizing that like, hey, the, the network's clog, like that and also uh, ICOs. I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you ever participated in any of those. You know, I did it just to just to figure out like what everybody was talking about and what the pain points were there. And, you know, some of those ICOs were it was a race to, to to hit a few buttons like right at 8 a.m. Pacific time and everybody was staying up all night trying to figure out their their setup and you know, ready, that set, was, go. ready <laughs> set go ready set go exactly like that you know people were spraining their fingers pushing pushing buttons too hard on the computer I mean it was it was insane and then and then I think some of the some of the other things that uh, really informed us because we have a partner on our team like Joey Krug who was the you know, chief architect behind Augur, you know, if Augur, you know, a prediction market that, you know, really allows people to do something globally that, uh, you know, they, they can and be able to provide global liquidity for that. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. But like, if that's really going to scale, like, you know, we're going to have to have that scalability problem solved. And that's, you know, having Joey on the team to be able to really help, you know, uh, assess what would be sort of needed for a project like Augur to scale. And the cool thing is that when we come across scalability projects, you know, we could basically have Augur eventually be like the first customer of any sort of scalability project. And so if it can pass the, you know, if it's good enough for Augur, hopefully it'll be good enough for a lot of other uh, decentralized applications. And that's that's an interesting take. You know, I've uh, I, I definitely loaded up Augur when it first came out. Um, you know, for the the novice, that might be a little bit scary, but I think it's gotten a lot better. But it's an interesting place. It's an interesting marketplace. It's a prediction marketplace for those that don't know it. We've talked about it before a little bit on the show, but um, you mentioned obviously layering on top of that with Vale. Uh, there are some interesting things happening with Augur and Vale. Um, so for the listeners, definitely take a look into those. But moving forward, you know, talking about your advisory uh, work with things like Enigma, MPC, I found this really interesting. So effectively what they uh, stipulate is that they're enabling anyone to build his or her own crypto hedge fund. So with that and things like Numeri, what do you think the face of hedge funds are going to look like in the next few years? Yeah, you know, I think uh, whether it's a hedge fund or whether it's maybe even having people, you know, there's, uh, there's of course, you know, 
being able to have data get aggregated and uh, encrypted and for people to be incentivized to either contribute more data or contribute um, you know, algorithms on, on top of that and then uh, other people to actually use that as part of their sort of money-making strategy and, and, and you know, whatever comes out of that gets paid back to those that, that really help contribute either on the data side or on the algorithm side. I mean, it's, it's really quite fascinating because not only could this be uh, not only could this be applied to uh, hedge funds and trading, but it could be applied to uh, social data. It could be applied to uh, auto data, uh, driving data. It could be applied to uh, genetic data. And you know, it's it's fascinating. We've we've seen we've seen a, a you know a bunch of these different concepts uh, with the token, and some of them are. Some of them are focused on one vertical, like, hey, we're going to do hedge fund trading data like Numerai and Enigma, or we're going to do genetic or some of them are just we're going to be a horizontal data marketplace and uh, allow anybody to create their own markets on top. Uh, you know, one one instance is, uh, you know, something like a origin, which I'm also an advisor to is, you know, creating a uh, a sharing economy marketplace, uh, you know, enabler, a platform where anybody can create uh, a marketplace uh, around sharing economy, uh, whether it's a sort of a housing rental market to transportation to fle freelancers and, you know, have this all run, you know, without a middleman, have, you know, identity be decentralized, have payments be decentralized, have disputes be decentralized, and it, it, it's fascinating. I mean, you know, I think it, it really just gives, uh, you know, value back to uh, the users themselves and for those that are actually contributing, uh, you know, work and data to this network. And so, you know, I, I think I think it's just, uh, you know, the business model kind of flipped the other way around, and it really enables, like, new types of businesses to, you know, accelerate more quickly because there is a token to sort of incentivize all parties. And, you know, so I think I think it's everything from getting getting the incentives sort of more aligned with those providing uh, the most valuable pieces of a certain you know business like data and, you know, really enable, uh, you know, enabling new businesses to get off the ground because, you know, there's an incentive layer sort of uh, tied into the business model. So I think it's fascinating. I'm, I'm really interested in, um, you know, seeing some of these companies really figure out, you know, the right token economics to kind of get these things going. And, you know, hopefully some of these big monopolies and conglomerates really getting a bit uh, disrupted. And uh, that's that's exciting to me. Yeah, we'll have to have you on and talk more about tokenomics and about the the state of tokenomics and about the kind of the the way the tokenomics were working in 2017. You know, with the ICO boom, into now it's maturing, it's it's changing a bit. People are trying to actually capture where the the value is accrued, and they're trying to come up with a schema to try to understand the valuation promising you know, kind of potential of those tokens. So it's an interesting time, but for the sake of time, we'll, we'll have you back on again to talk more about those types of kind of fundamentals. Um, but I'm also curious, and I also see that you're involved with Orchid Labs, and this is a project I took a look at about a year ago mm -hmm. with this notion of decentralized internet. And, you know, for those that, you know, obviously I've said this time and time again, you use Google, you use Gmail, you use Google Maps, you use any number of these different services that give themselves for free, then obviously you're the product. And so, you know, when you're the product, that means that they can find out where you are. They're tracking lots of data. Um, and then the notion of a decentralized Internet that does not necessarily do that, that uses um kind of the storage uh, to build off of it from places like Filecoin or storage and some other of those kind of projects or using things like a Cosmos for interoperability and using things like Handshake. You know, in terms of the way that you guys are thinking about, you know, decentralized internet and interoperability, 
you know, is this all going to work together harmoniously or are we going to be in fits and struggles for this for the next few years until we actually kind of get it right? Yeah, it's going to take time. I mean, you know, we're already seeing it's interesting, like, you know, I think we're starting to see, you know, right in the beginning when when it was just Bitcoin and we had the scalability problem, here comes some of the core developers, here comes Blockstream trying to figure out side chains and, you know, uh, and, and then a whole bunch of other companies started coming later on to figure out, you know, how do we do off-chain scalability? Okay, well, actually, you know, we're just going to build new blockchains and layer one blockchains just came out, um, you know, things that are going to compete at the same layer as uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And then, you know, we started seeing private blockchains and, well, there should be ways to make public and private blockchains or all blockchains sort of interoperable. And then and then we started seeing people uh, focus on, on decentralized applications. And so, uh, you know, a lot of those guys are are thinking, well, we're just going to focus on our layer and people are going to focus on either, you know, the Bitcoin Ethereum competitors or ones that will just kind of help, you know, layer two ones that will help scale existing blockchains. And things were pretty siloed. And I think now what we're seeing is, and, and maybe it was a function of some of these companies being able to raise a lot of money from the ICO uh, hype. But we're starting to see almost full stack solutions where, you know, the companies that are, um, let's just start with uh, those that are building applications and they're like, well, our specific use case uh, isn't scaling right now. And, you know, we know what needs to be solved for our application to be scaled. So instead of waiting for Ethereum to do what they need to do or, you know, a layer two protocol to kind of help scale Ethereum, we're just going to do it ourselves. And they're building either side chains or their own blockchain and trying to not only take the value from the top layer, but kind of take value all the way down the stack too. Versus, you know, we see, you know, protocols like Thunder or Oasis or ones that are creating, you know, Bitcoin Ethereum competitors. And they were probably thinking, hey, you know, we're going to just build the chain and everybody's going to come and build on top of us. And what they're realizing is that, like, it's really hard to build a community. Ethereum has a pretty far head start. Well, you know, what we can do is let's just instead of just building the chain, we're going to build the, 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 the first killer application on on this chain and really just kind of seed seed the traction on our network through, you know, what we think is going to be like, you know, some of the most compelling things. So things are starting to move full stack and, you know, um, you know, we'll kind of see what happens with it. And yeah, I, I don't think it's going to go that way going forward. I think we're going to start, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense for one company to kind of build the, or, or some companies to just like build the entire thing. So I think it'll be a, a great way for people to, you know, kind of see what what sort of communities get built, what sort of technologies uh, are actually, um, you know, making sense. And then uh, we'll start seeing fragmentation uh, going forward where, you know, apps are going to focus just on apps and then some infrastructures are actually going to start rising to the top. And then those ones are going to be the ones that like are going to be just infrastructure companies. That is a, it's an interesting take. It's, it's definitely an area where, again, we'll have you back on and talk more about that because this is, it's changing so fast. And, you know, you might think about the space, you know, in a specific way one day, and then all of a sudden everything just changes. And then, and then you have to recalculate and re, you know, kind of rethink everything that you were just, you know, previously thinking about. It's moving so fast. And there's been so much talent that have come into the ecosystem over the last year or so. And so it's an exciting time. And, you know, that's why a lot of us are obviously, you know, it's still guns blazing. And even though it's been uh, it's been cold out there, we're still doing well. Um, I kind of want you to unpack this last one and then we'll get into signal and to noise and get yeah. to learn a little bit more about you. But there is an interesting thing that you wrote. Um, and by the way, for those that don't know, Paul publishes, I think it's a weekly newsletter and you should sign up for it because he does a really nice recap of everything that's happening within the market. Um, and so in one that you wrote about a week ago, you, yeah. you said the thought process is that Coinbase will, won't likely dominate the entire world anytime soon. 
And those that are situated in these geographies have an advantage of knowing the local culture, being able to recruit and market, and having the ability to build relationships for banking and regulations. Now, this was obviously from a global scale, not just seeing talking about the United States. So I'm curious to hear your thought process behind that and kind of unpacking the thought behind all what you said there. Yeah, you know, that that went back to you know, one of our early theses in venture, you know, that started a few years ago and is still going on a little bit until today. You know, I think we've covered most of the geographies that we wanted to cover, but, you know, I think early on in an ecosystem, you really have to have focus, uh, focus for any startup. You can't, you can't boil the ocean and do everything, you know, even though Coinbase does seem like they are trying everything, you know, I, I know for a fact that you know, in terms of where they're dedicating their headcount, they are still focused on, you know, a few different areas and it's around, uh, you know, exchanges, uh, getting institutions on board, you know, the wallet and, and, and that. And, you know, they've tried different things like cross-border payments. They've tried things around, um, you know, sort of a Coinbase uh, OAuth, uh, they've, you know, to, to help, you know, companies, uh, you know, use their wallet and infrastructure to get uh, fiat on ramps and uh, and they've tried other things. And, you know, for them, like it, it makes sense to just focus on where they're situated and where they have the biggest moat right now. And that's the U.S. and that's around banking regulations. But you now as we look at all these other geographies that, you know, are, some of them already have gotten some traction. Uh, you know, like the Philippines for cross-border payments or like China, I mean, Japan and Korea, some of those exchanges have 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 gone gangbusters. And, you know, we actually made a, an early investment in Korea into an exchange that, you know, really just just ballooned in terms of in terms of traction. So uh, where places uh, that make sense for, you know, store of value, um, you know, cross-border payments with capital controls or a demographic that is just used to, you know, virtual currencies, technology, mobile, uh, innovation. And, you know, those are all the factors that we looked at while investing into or while choosing to invest into China, Korea, you know, Latin America, Middle East, India, you know, Africa. I mean, we've looked at all of these different places knowing that, you know, for, you know, because we've already, you know, we started off investing domestically, like we know the playbook to get an exchange and a community and, and, and what other services and value add that, you know, these type of companies can can sort of produce for the, you know, for the for the consumer. And, you know, there, there, there is a certain playbook to that. And part of that playbook is around building a strong team having the banking and the regulatory stuff all nailed down and, um, you know, in, in terms of a product. And so uh, with having that knowledge and knowing that locally you're going to need someone on the ground that has those connections, uh, we've had that local exchange, local wallet thesis. And, you know, that's why, you know, we're saying that Coinbase is not going to go global with that use case anytime soon and it makes a lot of sense to invest into i guess you can call them the coinbase of these different geographies and you know we know how much coinbase is valued at so if these guys become the digital bank for their geography the uh the profile and the return is is massive and later on we'll probably I and mean, we're already seeing some consolidation around exchanges uh we're going to see a lot more consolidation and that's going to turn out well for us and the industry Interesting take on that for sure. You know, I didn't really think about, you know, obviously we get very focused on the U.S. when we're here, but you obviously have to think about outside of that. And there's been such massive use cases, obviously, in Venezuela. Uh, you know, we had Lily, uh, Lily Lu on from, uh, yeah. from Earn the other day, and we were talking about China, and we were talking about that region there um, and about the rationale why it's taken off so much faster there, it seems, than it has here. Um, but it's an interesting take that you have to have kind of boots on the ground and you have to, you know, it, it's definitely, there's a, there's a definitely, it makes sense to, to do that kind of a, uh, thematic and a process for sure. So 
as we're rounding off, kind of talking about, you know, signal to noise, you know, one of the things that we like to do is kind of go through two or three different stories that have popped up in the last day or two. And very simply, uh, it's a lightning round, so you don't have to go into too much opining on this, but you basically just, you know, would say it's signal or noise, and you can give a little bit of an opinion why you think it's either or. And I think it's interesting, we were just talking about Coinbase, and Coinbase is in the news. Um, Apparently, Coinbase tops JP Morgan in LinkedIn list of most popular employees. And so it says that it has ranked above investment banking giant JP Morgan in LinkedIn's top 50 U.S. employers list for 2019. Now, do you think that is a signal or is that noise? I think that's signal. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, even even with the growing pains that Coinbase has had, uh, there's a lot of interest in getting into cryptocurrencies. People see the potential and people are tired of the existing banks. So I think that's a I think it's a great signal. Great. And in talking a little bit about the difference between private and public blockchains, we've seen some more corporations starting to embrace blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology, more from the private standpoint. We saw LVMH the other week kind of work with Consensus and with Microsoft Azure. And today it seems that Russian gas giant Gazprom is executing business contracts on blockchain. Apparently, they have developed a prototype of a technological platform to automate the process of concluding, monitoring, and executing contracts. The system also provides for automated arbitrage and calculation of payments of gas. And so I'm curious, using, you know, again, another corporate, this time overseas, but a large corporation that obviously in the oil and gas space is is significant, seeing another corporation like them kind of looking into DLT, is that a signal or is that more just noise? I think it's more noise. I, I think I think there is uh, some promise to, to DLTs on the private side, but, you know, we've seen for at least a bit of time that those guys are slow to move and the value proposition, you know, isn't, isn't quite compelling for them to kind of go out of the POC stage. And I think we're still at a stage where uh, ex- exploration and R&D, but, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it is just trying to grab headlines right now. Good take. And then the last one, uh, again, talking about corporations and their interest in blockchain. Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland, and enterprise blockchain firm R3 and other participants have completed a blockchain trial that they said resulted in faster property transactions. The effort, the firm said, demonstrated that the real estate buying and selling process could be reduced from more than three months to less than three weeks. Using blockchain technology for the process could save the global property market about $160 billion annually. And so with that, do you think that consortium and what they're doing uh, in terms of real estate, is that signal or noise? I think that's noise. I mean, I think in terms of transactions, not, I, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's not that big of an innovation. I think I'm a little bit more excited about uh, property rights and potentially you know, even security, securitizations, asset-backed securitization. So with that particular use case, it doesn't, you know, I think it's more noise. Love it. Um, one signal and two noise. That's great. Um, um, and so to wrap up, you know, the things that we also like to do with our guests are getting a little bit more personal and figuring out and learning what you're reading. Um, and then, as I imagine, you and the team were traveling a lot. I know you guys are uh, wrapping up uh, Fund 3. So I know that you've been traveling a lot, seeing lots of prospective LPs and also seeing lots of portfolio companies and the such. And so when you're traveling, what are you listening to? Uh, but also when you're, you know, hopefully getting some time to read, and hopefully it's not just about Austrian economics or things of that nature, what are you reading uh, that you think is, you know, something that other people would really love to learn about? Yeah, so on the on the listening side, I mean, um, I know it's still industry relevant, but, you know, I, I've been a big fan of uh, podcasts, and so... You know, podcasts like yourselves or other industry podcasts or even venture podcasts like 20 Minute VC, you know, where it's not, you know, it's not taking up a whole hour. I can have a quick, um, you know, quick digest of, uh, you know, on, on certain topics or hear from certain people that I really respect. I mean, so that's kind of what I do. 
when I'm kind of moving around and it's great. Like, I'll, you know, I can go on the treadmill and listen to one session. And it's a, it's a good, you know, one to two mile run. So, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, I, I think things like 20 minute VC are, are pretty, pretty helpful. And then, and then in terms of reading, I mean, you know, there's definitely a lot of great books from, you know, people in our space regarding entrepreneurship that have come out, you know, a lot Gill has a high growth handbook that I've been, uh, I've been taking a look at and, and starting to read. And then, you know, I think for myself, you know, I'm always interested in becoming, you know, as, especially as we scale out Pantera, becoming a better leader and a better manager. So uh, I'm starting to read a couple of books there just to be able to kind of build larger and more well-functioning organizations. And so, um, you know, but outside of those two, I'd say the only, some of the other things that I'm passionate about that I guess would maybe, you know, um, tell a little, a little bit more about me would be, I'm a huge sports guy. So I do a lot of sports reading, you know, I got, I got some favorite teams and, you know, I like to watch sports, uh, go to sporting events. And so that's a great way for me to sort of, you know, take time away from the industry and the space and kind of, you know, really just, you know, uh, take a step back and then, and then I'm a huge outdoors person too. So, uh, whether it's, uh, when I'm going to Asia, I got to find a good hiking trail to go to, or, you know, jog around the city or, you know, uh, go to Switzerland and, and, and climb the Alps a little bit. So I like kind of getting out there and that's again, giving myself an opportunity to, to have some balance and just kind of, uh, be able to clear my mind. Nice. I think we're just going to define you as the Indiana Jones of crypto right now, going <laughs> to, going in the Alps, you know, running around Tokyo and all these places. And that's, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. Um, and so lastly, you know, if people want to kind of find out more about you and obviously want to find out more about Pantera, um, you know, we like to give, you know, a quick second here. You can obviously, you know, if, uh, if there's a way they can sign up for your, your newsletter, or if there's a way they can find out more about, about Pantera, you know, feel free to let the, uh, the listeners know. Yeah. So Pantera, we have a website, PanteraCapital.com. You can go there and sign up for our, uh, our newsletter. I have a, a weekly, that newsletter comes out once a month. I have a, a weekly blog that you can sign up for, I guess the easiest way to do that would be uh, you can you can go to my Twitter and uh, my Twitter is just my last name. That's the handle Beretta Tackett. You may have to, to search for that. But uh, once you go there, there's uh, a website. Uh, the name of my blog is Verratta uh, Verdict and it's just VerrattaVerdict.com. You could sign up and you'll get a weekly newsletter that I'll tell you what's going on during the week, both in terms of news and also what I'm thinking about right now. Awesome. And uh, again, for everyone who's listening, I highly recommend it. Paul does a great job recapping uh, all of the things that are happening out there. We're all trying to do that these days. You know, I do it with Signal to Noise and the podcast and other things, but there's a lot of information happening right now. And people like Paul that are trying to synthesize it, trying to put some rationale to it is really unique and helpful. Paul, this was great. Paul uh, at Pantera, thank you for joining us on Base Later. We'll be seeing you soon. Take care. All right. Thank you very much for having me. This letter, this letter, this letter.